1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Historical Biography. I'm Mark Clobus, your host for the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Norman Mockt about his biography of the legendary baseball player and manager Connie Mack, the grand old man of baseball. Norman, welcome to the show.
0: Uh, thank you. Happy to be here.
1: Norman, I was wondering if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself.
0: Well, I've been writing in one form or another practically all my life. I've done a lot of book packaging and uh producing as well as writing about 35 to 40 books, primarily biographies, uh, a lot of them for young readers of uh, middle school age. And I've done other things that are of interest to me more than they would be to your listeners. But um, uh, I've lived a varied life, not... not working for any one company or anything for, you know, 40 or 50 years. And um, I'm now 86, so I don't have another 40, 50 years
1: to look forward to. And you had just been a longtime writer, but you've been also a longtime fan of baseball.
0: Well, that's true, and I've always been interested in baseball. And uh, several of the biographies I did for youngsters are Hall of Fame ballplayers, and uh, I'm a member of the Society for American Baseball Research, have been for about 30 years. So, um, yeah, baseball has been an avocation. I one time ran minor league clubs way back in what some people would consider the stone ages. But, uh, yeah, I've always been a fan and a student and a historian of baseball.
1: So... How did you come about to write this book? And I should add for our listeners that this is not a complete biography of Connie Mack. This is the third and final volume of a three-volume work of Connie Mack.
0: All right. Um, I began it um, about 30 years ago, but the idea came to me. I met him once. That was way back. I was 18 years old. It was in the 1940s and um, had a brief I was in conversation with him. He was very, very um, uh hospitable. And um, over the years, I read a lot of baseball books about everybody from John McGraw to Mickey Mantle and um, other baseball heroes and never saw anything of any substance about Connie Mack, who epitomized the history of the game since he was born in 1862 and died in 1956 and he was in the game until 1950 uh, his life paralleled
1: the history
0: of, of the sport and the business so I thought well I'm going to remedy that and fortunately I got the full cooperation of his children and grandchildren in the writing of it and that made all the difference in the world and it started out to be a 300, 350-page book, like most other books. And um, I found at the end of that length, I was only about one-third of the way through his life. <laughs> so what do I do? I asked my publisher of the University of Nebraska press, press for permission to add a second volume. And they graciously consented. And the second volume only took me up to two-thirds of his life. So um, I extracted from them an okay to do a third volume, and the result was the volume that we are now basically talking about.
1: And this volume starts off in 1931,
0: and he, he's, I believe, 69 at this point? Um, He is... Uh, she, she was born in
1: 1862,
0: so he's 69.
1: Yeah, he turned 69 that year. And whereas, where is he at this point in his career?
0: He is just coming off what some people consider the greatest baseball team of all time, his 1929 31 A's, which won three pennants. First World Series and lost the third World Series in seven games. But uh, that, that was, uh, in my opinion, uh, a greater team than the 27, 28 Yankees. And that's where he was. And the depression has just hit.
1: I was wondering if you could explain a bit what was his role in the team at this time. and. What exactly did the title of being the manager of the A's encompass for him?
0: Uh, in one word, everything. <laughs> and we are jumping ahead a little bit because that everything also carried the seeds of the downfall of the business. If you remember, this is basically an American story of a man Whose parents had been immigrants from Ireland, a man with a sixth-grade education, who started a business in 1901 and ran it until 1950, and left it to his sons who couldn't get along and couldn't and fought among themselves, with the result that the business failed, and had to be sold and eventually was moved, and that's a not an unusual. American business life kind of story.
1: So So, we're not talking about an organization uh, like the kind that we're familiar with today, which are uh, very large entities with hundreds of employees and uh, worth millions upon millions of dollars. Not at
0: all. Not at all.
1: And And they weren't
0: all that way uh, in his last year as a manager in 1950 either. I mean, you have to to put this all in the context of the times. It was another world, another business world. And what led to the, to jump ahead a little bit, what led to the downfall was, of the A's, was that he, even into his 70s, was still a one-man business. He was the president. He was the general manager. He was the farm director, he was the scouting director, as well as being the field manager and, and traveling, making player decisions uh, with the team. And other teams by that time had four, five, six people doing those jobs, and he was doing it all by himself into his late 70s and early 80s.
1: How was he able to do this? Because, as you mentioned, not only does he do it, but he is coming off having done so successfully with, you know, one of the, if not the greatest baseball team of all time.
0: Because the times changed, in in one particular way, he he was not stuck in his time. He was very progressive, very far-sighted. He was in favor of radio, and when, when that was a real battle of uh, broadcasting games. He was in favor of night baseball when almost every major league team was against it and wouldn't put in lights. He was, he was progressive in those ways. What he fell behind in was the farm system. He was against the farm system, was very late getting into it and got into it very with tiptoes and other teams like the Yankees. The, uh, the Dodgers, the Cardinals, uh, passed him by until it was too late. And that was the key to his downfall because his great teams, 29-31 teams, he had put together by buying high-priced minor league stars. Lefty Grove, Al Simmons, Mickey Cochran, people like that. And after the farm systems came in, all of the stars in the minor leagues were controlled by these farm systems. And none of them were for sale. The only minor leagues for sale were the scraps, the leftovers, the, re- the remainders. And so he couldn't build another winner and didn't. And that's why his last, from 35 to um Forty-six. Uh, he did a little better in one of the war years but they were unusual years but he couldn't get anywhere and there was one striking anomaly in all this in 1948 he made some shrewd draft choices of minor leaguers and he almost won the 1948 American League pennant he was leading the league in August, and but for his his pitchers coming up with sore arms and just being worn out, he faded, and and of course didn't win it, but he could have, and and here he was, 86 years old, and he could have won that one more pen.
1: Which is really was his goal for. Many of the years that you're covering in your book, he just wanted, that, or he declared at least to the press, he just wanted that one more pennant.
0: Well, he he he. Along the way, he softened that. He said, "I'd like to have one more contender. I'd like to be up in the race one more time." Unfortunately, by the time he was in 1948, he was uh, he had advanced senility. He had had many. I think many strokes. Um, he could not get the words out that he wanted to. He could not talk to his players. He would fly off the handle sometimes, which he hadn't done for maybe 90 years. And he was, he was covered by his coaches and his players. They understood and took things into their own hands to a great extent. And so he does not deserve the credit except for the players that he picked out. Uh, He does not deserve the credit for almost winning that pennant. But nevertheless, what a great story that would have been.
1: Mm -hmm. One of the things that stands out in your book is his ability to assess players, to offer them good uh, advice when they're on the field. And you quote in... uh, several places, these players who constantly return to the fact that even when he's in his 70s and 80s, he always seems to know or almost always seems to know exactly, you know, what is the right thing to do, you know, whether they should back up or whether they should uh, you know, move or if they switch positions, it might seem awkward at first, but it oftentimes works out. He really seems to have demonstrated, even into his 80s. A good understanding of the game itself. He never seemed to lose that up until the very end.
0: Right. He was a he was a fourth outfielder, primarily for for most of his managing days. He, even veteran players, he would he would move them and they would shake their heads and he would move them, continue to move them, and they would say this old man is crazy. And then often I can't say every time, but often uh, the batter would hit the ball straight at him. And uh, he he didn't really lose that. He lost his ability to move infielders because basically he couldn't see them anymore. Couldn't mm-hmm. see them clearly anymore. And um, so that, that was a handicap for him. But he was always a teacher. Mm-hmm. First and foremost, he was a teacher. And uh, he also realized, incidentally, that when he did not have dependable pitchers who, he, who knew what they were doing and could put the ball where they wanted to, he would abandon his moving of his outfielders because it didn't work <laughs> if the pitchers didn't pitch to him the way they were supposed to.
1: You quote him as saying that 80% of baseball is pitching. I think it was the uh, number that, he, that uh, he said.
0: Yes. And of and- that, he also said, and 40% of that is catching. He mm-hmm. recognize, as an old-time catcher himself, he recognized the role of the catcher uh, in successful pitching.
1: One of the things that uh, you mention in the book, though, on occasion are some of his biases. For example, his belief that you couldn't really have short pitchers. And I was wondering if you, if he had any other ones that, you feel shaped the teams that he had during this period, maybe in a way that was very limiting, or just in a way that was quirky.
0: He didn't like he he didn't want any troublemakers. He didn't care how good they might be. He didn't want any troublemakers. Uh, he he valued uh, harmony in the clubhouse. Fights, disputes, arguments between players uh, that
1: he overlooked. But uh, basically, and, and he also was not opposed to having, say, pranksters in the field or people who maybe you know stirred up the game with language during the game itself.
0: Oh, no, he posts. loved his bench jockeys. He didn't calm them down at all. And uh, he wanted the players to have fun. He encouraged that. He encouraged them to think for themselves. Come up with trick plays. Try them out. If they don't work, try something else. Unlike John McGraw, who did all the thinking for all his players himself and let them know, I'll do all the thinking.
1: So whereas John McGraw's a micromanager, Mac gives his players a lot of latitude to develop as not just players, but also as baseball thinkers because you also mentioned the number of them who go on to various coaching and managing positions uh, throughout baseball.
0: That's right. And And it went all the way back. His, his 1910 and 1914, um, champions have won four out of five pennants. Um, there, there were some college players, and he loved college players in those days. And, um, he gave them full attitude to, uh, to think up things, try them out, as I said. And, um, he, he loved that aspect of the game, which disappeared as the years went by. And, uh, there were fewer players coming out of the colleges, more of them coming off the farms, coming off the, out of the coal mines. And, uh, while they may have had great natural ability, um, they didn't necessarily have great baseball brains.
1: Mm-hmm. And the farm system would have developed that, but Mac didn't have that.
0: He was, uh, well, as I say, um, that was he, he wanted them to think, but he also, if anything was bothering them, he wanted to know it, and he could tell, and he would call them into his office and make them sit there until they spilled out what was bothering Sometimes it had nothing to do with the team or the game. It's something to do with home life, and he, he wanted to know. And if, he, if they said they would be happier somewhere else, Fine, he would say, where would you like to go and I'll try to trade you there. He, He treated his players like his own sons.
1: That respect definitely comes through in your description of so many of those relationships. But I also noticed that his concerns weren't just about the players. He's also very involved in the business end. And I was wondering if you could explain a bit the business side of the A's organization, because one of the things you mentioned in the book that was new that you didn't have in your first two volumes were the discovery of some of the ledgers of the A's. Right. So we have m- more insight into the business side of it.
0: Um, the Shibes were his partners until uh, Ben Shive, the original partner and uh, and Ben Shive's sons who were active in the business for many years, until they died, and the last one died uh, in the 1930s, and then Mac took on everything, Um, the Shibes took care of the business part of it, and they left the baseball part completely up to him. He could do anything, but he told them what he wanted to do, but he made all the player decisions, made all the baseball decisions, all the Scheduling of the spring training and all that kind of stuff, and they took care of the business end of it. And when they the last of the Shives died off, all of that responsibility fell on him. He had two sons in the business, but one was a coach, and he didn't have much upstairs. And the other was a, a, a front office kind of business manager uh, who knew nothing about baseball on the field. Nothing about the players. Nothing about that aspect of it. So that continued to be all on Mac's shoulders uh, until uh, the end.
1: So how did the A's make money? Particularly in the 1930s when you have a depression and you have, uh, at that time, baseball played only in the daytime. And you don't have a lot of people able to afford going to games. So Mm -hmm. how, how did the A's... Uh, didn't earn an income. They, they
0: lost. They lost piles of money, which, unlike teams like the Red Sox with Tom Yawkey and the Yankees with Jake Rupert and their outside fortunes, um, he had nothing outside. He had no other outside source of income except the team, period. And they lost a lot of money. And a lot of teams lost a lot of money. They lost a lot of money in the federal league wars um, around nineteen fifteen to seventeen everybody lost money World war one everybody lost money they cut salaries Mac cut his own salaries. The baseball commissioner's salary uh he cut uh Kenths cut his own salary um, they they tried they cut the, as much as they could. And uh just try to get by, but in the end uh other team other businesses during the depression could close plants, they could lay off workers, they could shut down. but what could a baseball team do? They couldn't stay in business without playing the schedule, without fielding a team. so in Mac's case, and a few others, the only thing they could do was sell off assets. And the only asset they had to sell was players. So Mac sold his high-priced players that paid off the bank loans, that uh, kept them going. Otherwise, he'd have been out of business. And he didn't hesitate to say so.
1: But of course, that came at a price. And that price was the teams were struggling to do well. They were struggling even to uh, make 500 And that contributed to a lot of the woes that uh the team had during those decades. During that's those right. years.
0: And that and that's why when they began to, to work out of the depression in 38, 39, 40, and of course World War II came off and and took you know, hundreds, if not thousands, of ball players, minor leaguers in major leagues, which set all baseball back again. Major league baseball was essentially high minor league baseball. For three <laughs> years or four years. But um so there was all the high salary players were gone too. So the salaries were quite low for everybody. But uh yeah, Max struggled, no question about it. And as I said before, um he had no farm system and after the war he couldn't compete. And uh he didn't but they struggled and they were losing money and they were in debt. And then he made a huge mistake when he retired and he chose, of his three sons, none of whom could get along with the other two, he chose the oldest because he said in old Irish custom, the oldest must succeed me. And the oldest was the least competent. The youngest could have have saved the team, could have made a go of it, but he was the youngest. And so he was out.
1: Well, there was also the dynamic with the Phillies that complicated things, but I want to return to that in just a little bit. One of the things that I noticed in the earlier chapters about the Depression that strike me as especially interesting compared to today was the degree to which Connie Mack was willing to... Uh, undertake various, not really stunts, but expeditions. How spring training was not a fixed location. He would move it to Louisiana. He would move it to Mexico. He would move it to uh, actually that was an exhibition. He moved to California, a- and just the the searching for ways to keep the team going.
0: Well, he he had, um, when the, when they started losing. Uh, toward the end of their stay in West Palm Beach, where they had been for some time, um, they couldn't draw anything because they were no longer the champions. And there were no other major league teams nearby for exhibition games. So he moved to California, uh, Southern California, which was a good place to train. Um, During the war, of course, nobody could travel for spring training. So they stayed in Frederick, Maryland. Mexico was a big mistake. They were there one year and regretted it. And it just didn't work. Uh, Lake Charles, Louisiana, he had been earlier in his career and he liked it. And so they went back there again, but, um, it it was, it was as much because they were now losing money in West Palm beach that he began to cast around looking for other places. Um, before the war
1: so it wasn't just a matter of selling off his most expensive players he was also searching for ways to maximize his revenue be it moving spring training be it uh, exhibition games and then of course there was this trip to japan i was wondering if you could describe that for our audience
0: the trip to japan um is interesting it was it was planned uh originally by his son Earl, who was a coach, um, and he made the contacts and he wrote to some people in Japan who were they were they were promoting it of the Japanese newspaper. And Connie Mack wasn't even gonna go along. Um, but um, and and the major league clubs uh really were against it. They didn't want their players going. Uh, partly because they were afraid that some of their stars might get hurt. Um, partly it was because there was clearly war talk going on, uh, from the Japanese, uh, that saber rattling was very much in evidence. And Commissioner Landis, uh, said that since the contracts, uh, have been uh, undertaken, that he thought they should be fulfilled and so he gave the okay to make the team. A lot of Major League teams would not let any of their players go. but uh, And there were several of the A's who went and it was Mac's family who urged him to take the trip. They said in effect all you do is travel around the American League circuits and all which he always enjoyed to the day he quit. But here's a chance to take a trip and get out, have some fun, and they talked him into going. And he went as the manager. And um, the um, catcher, Mo Berg, was one of the players who went, and he was the one who went primarily to take pictures for the government uh, of, of Tokyo and any place they went. And he was the one who Did more of climbing to the tops of buildings and taking pictures, uh, of Tokyo and other cities for the U.S. intelligence, uh, than playing any ball. But that was another part of it, uh, and Mac really knew nothing about that and was not involved in that. But it was quite an adventure. And, uh, yeah, I thought that, and that was a a fun, uh, chapter to write about.
1: It was, a very successful exhibition from an attendance standpoint. The Japanese turned out in enormous numbers, not just for Mac, of course, but they also had the most famous name in baseball with them in uh, Babe Ruth.
0: Yeah, and they they would not leave the players alone. They 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 mobbed them. They loved them, and and when Mac came back, he, he reported that they heard no um, military, no anti American, no war talk, nothing at all while they were there.
1: Just the love of the Japanese people.
0: That's right. And the so, Japanese love baseball, even though their baseball was far different from American baseball. Uh, they they were awed by the home run hitting Americans because it was really not a part of their game at all. It was a fluke if somebody hit a home run.
1: And when you have Babe Ruth there, you're going to get home runs.
0: (laughs) Yeah, Lou Gehrig and a few others, yeah.
1: Of course, searching around for other revenue opportunities with exhibitions and spring training wasn't just the only way he innovated. I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit more upon those twin poles that you talk about later in the 1930s, uh, night games and uh, then radio, if you could talk about what was going on there with baseball in general and what Connie Mack was doing regarding those uh two innovations for the A's.
0: Uh night nice baseball began in the minor leagues and uh just a few ladies didn't play every game at night and and they seemed to be successful. And uh uh they drew crowds there and um uh, then then Lyon McPhail of course introduced it um uh, a uh, first in Cincinnati and um, the St. Louis Browns had, had been recently purchased because St. Louis Browns lost money every year. They had no money to work with. And the new buyer said, I want to introduce night baseball. I want to play up to, I think it was seven games a year. Help financially. And the American League turned him down. And he went back next year and tried again. And they agreed, provided that any team that wanted to could opt out of playing any night games.
1: Why was there so much resistance?
0: Um, I don't know. It's partly because um, it was seen as a stunt, partly because it was seen as something Bush League, um, partly because it was new, and baseball has, has hardened hardening of the arteries, or did have anyhow, <laughs> for decades and decades and decades. They were just averse to any kind of change um, as an institution. And the more successful teams didn't need it. They called it a circus. And the Yankees wouldn't play any night games. The Red Sox wouldn't play any any night games. And uh, Connie Mack said, look, we're in the middle of the d- depression. There are people can go to games at night that couldn't otherwise in the daytime. If it helps a business, why shouldn't we do it? And he was turned down. And it took a couple of years before he got permission. And even then, the Yankees said, no, we won't play at night. And I think the Yankees were the last, to put, well, not the last, the next to the last. Uh, the Chicago Cubs were the last, Wrigley. Really. Um, it took him a couple of years to get approval to play night games. And they were successful. And night games helped to save his business.
1: And yet you mentioned that just as the night games start to save the business, radio has the exact opposite effect.
0: Well, radio uh, was fought over because, again, most of the owners were afraid if you're giving away the games, nobody will come to the ballpark. And they were scared of something new. And in the late twenties, uh, radio was brand new. I mean, it was nothing on, but, but some live music, some soprano singers, some round table discussions, some occasional stunts. Uh, it was a radio that nobody, uh, under 70 years of age, I uh, can imagine. But, um, it was, it was started in Pittsburgh again as a stunt, a Pittsburgh radio station, um, uh, using somebody in the ballpark who would relay what was happening to in the game. And then they, the broadcaster would say it over the air. And that's the way it was that- done for several years.
1: And that was where Western Union played the role and had an exclusive contract to communicate that information.
0: Yeah, and and they they got mad, they got upset about it uh, because these guys were bypassing. Uh, they were going to a pay telephone and relaying to somebody uh, what well, had happened in the last half inning. And then the broadcaster would, in effect, recreate it. And there were bootleg games, uh, one station would steal it off another station and, uh, all kinds of shenanigans were going on. And, uh, nobody in baseball was making any money on it. And in Chicago, uh, Phil Wrigley, the Wrigley chewing gum magnet, who had made his business successful through advertising, said advertising is the way to go. And he opened all of his games, free, to every radio station that wanted to broadcast
1: them. And
0: he was the pioneer of it all.
1: I think you mentioned at one point five Chicago stations were broadcasting his games simultaneously? Yeah. And so the major innovation that was taking place in the 30s was the idea of the sportscaster broadcasting the game live from the booth. When did that start to happen for the A's?
0: Oh, hmm. um, uh, you've got it in front of you. and I don't. I'm I, kind of thinking around 1939, mm-hmm. but it could have been a year or so earlier.
1: And that was. And,
0: and it was really, and more than one, more than one station in Philadelphia broadcast the games.
1: So going into the 1940s the baseballs recovering from the great depression night games are increasing uh, uh the revenue from the ticket box and then the war hits and as you mentioned basically baseball becomes a minor league level quality game and then you had this 1944 season where the A's do uh have one of their best seasons in in a while
0: uh yeah and, and, and Washington, which had been known for being first in war and first in peace and last in the American League when the A's <laughs> weren't, um, almost won a pennant 45. But it was that kind of topsy-turvy year that, um, uh, didn't. I mean, it's the only year that the St. Louis Browns won a pennant. And except for the war, uh, they probably wouldn't have done that. So it was... They were clearly abnormal years for everybody.
1: Do you feel that Connie Mack's style of baseball management actually worked for him in those years with so many people being drawn into the war that his more one-man operation had a bit of extra life to it? Or did he really not benefit from the war years from the standpoint of how he ran his teams?
0: No, it, it it didn't really affect him. Um, of course, uh, there a lot of minor leagues um, closed down during the war, um, and a lot of the would-be prospects uh, were going into the service. So the whole thing kind of kind of became it shrunk. The whole business, every aspect of it, just kind of shrunk. So and, and Mac was just making do uh, like everybody else. It was too abnormal to draw any conclusions from. I would say.
1: Well, I was just thinking about how he has this enormous wealth of knowledge that he never really seems to lose until the very end of his career, and how he's bringing in a lot of these veterans who, in normal years, might no longer be in the game or, at the very least, be you know in the minor my- minors. But he's able to draw upon that some degree.
0: Well, that and and kids, and yeah. and there were some four Fs along the way, uh-huh. um, but. Um, uh, as I say, now by by uh, the the end of the war, he's he's now uh, over over eighty, mm-hmm. uh, or, uh let's see, he, he turned eighty in uh, 1942. So by the end, he was he was well on on his way uh, to eighty three, eighty four, and he has had some strokes. His mind was still sharp. But where the strokes came into play was his inability to move quickly enough, his thoughts to his tongue, to words. That's where the lapses were.
1: To react and then communicate.
0: Yeah, and so of course in baseball, if you if you want a guy to pinch hit, you got to say so pretty quick, and he might. Or if you want to change a pitcher, and so. He might have the thought, but he couldn't get it out. And that's what he meant when he said, I no longer talk to the players. He couldn't get things out quickly or clearly enough, regardless of how good his thinking still was.
1: One of the recurring uh, uh, episodes in your biography are the number of times that people basically celebrate his impending retirement. And I want you to talk for a bit, if you could, about that attitude that Mac brought to the idea of retirement, the idea of why did he stay as long as he did? Uh, What were his conditions for retirement? And ultimately, why was it that he, if you will, missed the window when he Probably should have retired
0: stubbornness is part of it. stubbornness uh exhibited itself here and there throughout his life. That was I think a big part of it. Another part of it was uh he recognized the weakness in his sons, and he really put off as long as he could naming any of them as a successor, not because he doubted uh Connie Jr.'s ability, but Connie Jr. was the youngest, and his two older stepbrothers had no respect for him, wouldn't listen to him, wouldn't cooperate with him, wouldn't buy any of his ideas, and Connie Mack knew that. He saw it, and he did not have somebody in his own family that he could comfortably turn the business over to. That was part of it. Um,
1: so another part of it at, was
0: oh, that he had coaches in Jimmy Dykes and Al Simmons, who were loyal to him, who loved him, who practically uh, he considered them um, more than sons, who covered for him. He trusted them entirely, and he and they kind of you know. Could could get through, could could muddle their way through, and except for 1948, they didn't have the playing talent uh, to field any winners.
1: Uh, anyhow,
0: then, but he he never entertained the idea of retiring. He, he he would just put off the whole question. It was asked of him, you know, in his 80s, uh, numerous times.
1: I was and him he the seventies.
0: when I feel I can no longer do the job, or when i can I'm not healthy enough, or when this or when that. They were just excuses, because he had had sicknesses in his later years, and he clearly should have stepped down. But they were only excuses. And then, when it got to 48 and 49, then it became, I want to put it in that 50th year. And he was determined to do that, even though he knew. He knew by that time he wasn't capable. He no longer could do the job. But he, as I said, he leaned on his his coaches and, and they honored him, respected him enough to carry him through.
1: So what ultimately led him to retire? Un- what, what, what brought about it? What was the what was the uh, you know what ultimately led him to do this to to commit to retire after uh, all these years of so, that,
0: that he'd served fifty years as as owner and manager of the Athletics.
1: So once he reached that point, he, he was right. Yeah,
0: he knew it. He knew it. He, I, he admitted afterwards, uh, I I should have quit two years earlier, uh, but uh, that there again was that stubbornness. He was bound and determined to go to have that 50th Jubilee. He was a little bit of a ham. Mm-hmm. And he was celebrated everywhere he went. And during the season, every team on the road, when, when he was on the road, every team had a Connie Mack day. Some lasted <laughs> two or three days. And he was ham enough to enjoy that adulation. And this is what got him through that 50th year. And he knew it was coming, and uh, and he enjoyed it.
1: You would think he would have been tired of it by that point because he had been experiencing Connie Mack days back in the 1930s. You mentioned about how people in 1937, 1938, 1939 are anticipating his retirement. There are rumors that this person, this player, is about to be tapped to be the manager of the yeah. A's once Connie Mack retires.
0: He, he never took any of that seriously. And I think nobody in the athletics organization did either. But, but that um, didn't
1: stop him from taking the turn and you know enjoying the banquets and enjoying the Connie Mack days when he went to Cleveland or Chicago.
0: He enjoyed the, he enjoyed the travel up until the end. He always enjoyed the travel, sleeping in the Pullmans, the hotels, uh, eating on the road. Uh, he had friends everywhere. Um, he had relatives. Uh, in some or near some cities. He always enjoyed visiting. He he loved that. He loved that life. Uh, no man, I think, ever loved what he was doing for a living for that long uh, any more than Cuddy Mac did.
1: The Cuddy Mac that you described really does seem to be something of an extrovert who really, Seems to get extra life out of engaging with players, engaging with fans, engaging with the press.
0: Yes, he, he was known. Uh, a lot of people commented about how kind and gentlemanly and courtly he was, and how he would uh, wouldn't turn anybody aside in the hotel lobby or uh, in spring training. Uh, he would pound. Somebody wanted his autograph in the stands. He would he would walk up. He would tell him, "Stay there." And he'd walk up in the stands to where they were and, and sign stuff for them. Uh, he'd sign for youngsters. Um, he never, never, he would turn away autograph seekers after a game. Once he was out of the ballpark and headed for his car, uh, then he didn't like to be stopped. But, uh, otherwise, uh, time and again, I talked to people who commented on, on how, uh, Gracious, he was to strangers.
1: Well, I remember, he, he, and even occasionally there would be times where he'd make exceptions to his rule. I remember the story you tell in the book where he has the boy following him for two blocks, and he stops, and he finally agrees to sign the the kid's baseball or autograph book or whatever he had.
0: Yeah, yeah, that, that was that was an exception, and the mm-hmm. kid just just kept after him and wasn't going to let <laughs> up, wasn't going to give up, but. um and all the the um, people who worked in Shy Park, the concessions people and the ushers, they all loved him. The writers loved him. That was the most striking thing of all that it didn't matter. They might argue over money, um, the, the players in him, um, the writers, as hard boiled as they were, uh, he was always ready for a column and an interview. And he would give them some advice, and uh, on, on, he would tell them. Now I might, uh, I might deny something after you write it, but uh, that's all right. You go ahead and write it because if if you write it and it turns out not to be so or I deny it, then you've got a second story to write <laughs> about the denial. He was always on their side, and they appreciated it, and. Um I mean these guys they've been on all kind of beats and they've been in the business forever and they all loved him. And that was that was a phenomenon that uh, uh that really struck me.
1: Now when he was in retirement in his final years, how did he respond to uh the developments regarding As The uh in fighting between his sons, the uh move to Kansas City. Was he still active enough or aware enough to uh to to comment or to try to uh intervene in some way?
0: Uh yes and no. He he was he tried he went to some of the meetings involving uh the sale possible sale of the team, but he was honored and revered by all the other club owners in the room. But uh, as one of them told me uh he really he really didn't seem to know what was going on, but he he supported he he backed Earl and Roy, and he was disappointed he He wrote to a friend, "I can't understand why uh Connie Jr doesn't think much of them." They're both good boys, and Connie Jr. wound up selling out to them, which he later said was a big mistake, but at the time, uh, he was a, he was a minority, uh, the, uh, stockholder, and he couldn't, he couldn't live with his two brothers. he couldn't fight with them, he couldn't work with them, so he got out. And, and the two others, uh, Connie Mack said things that, uh, uh, he really didn't know what was going on, and in the end, uh, they rode it toward the brink of bankruptcy. And Max's shares of the business was the only asset he had left to his name. And if it had gone bankrupt, he'd die broke. And uh, the the shenanigans that went on was a real soap opera, or a circus, or a tragedy, depending on how you look at it. Um, That is another thing that I I found out that had never been revealed before was exactly how uh, Roy Mack manipulated the A's sale to Kansas City when there was a Philadelphia group that had signed a contract to buy the team and keep it in Philadelphia, and that just uh, pulls the rug out from under Connie Mack. And the team went off to Kansas City,
1: and then eventually to Oakland. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
0: Well, over the years, I've done hundreds of taped audio interviews with old time players, Uh, players who today are old timers, some of whom are still living. But um, and I have this collection, and my entire collection. Of material, of research material, of um, tapes, has gone to the library at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, and incidentally is available. A lot of the material is available online uh, to people, or they can visit the library, and and they're very cooperative in making it available to people. But I picked out about fifty or sixty of those interviews, and I'm. I'm working on the possibility of collecting them into a, a book similar to the glory of their times, which some people may be familiar with, of the voices of these people telling their stories uh, in and out of baseball. And uh, so that, I'd say, is is a possible next project. But it's going to take a whole lot less than 30 years to complete <laughs>
1: <laughs> I I... Sounds like a fantastic project. Norman, thank you very much for uh, taking some time to uh, share with our listeners about this amazing uh, trilogy that you've written. And uh, have a wonderful day.
0: Thank you very much for having us.